let's continue on. Last night, you know, we we ended um, maybe a little abruptly, but we ended uh, talking about this pattern uh, that Paul lays out in in um, in First Corinthians that that Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman, and the Father is the head of Christ, and that. <clears throat> That pattern I want to focus in a little bit more on yet this evening as we begin here. And I want to examine some of the components of that. I had a, uh, this afternoon, we, or this morning earlier, we were talking, I was talking with a few brothers, and we were examining some of these things. And I, I really think that this passage, Paul's a brilliant writer, he's a brilliant man. He's a lot of really complicated and profound things to say in his writings. But one of the most beautiful passages to me is this passage in 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of um, really interesting wordplay that happens, right? Like, like let, let's just flip there real quick so you all know what I'm talking about. Look in 1 Corinthians, and we'll refresh ourselves there. Um. We're in chapter eleven, of course. Like, look at the look at what he does here. Uh, he says in verse uh, no, verse eight: For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Uh, for this cause ought the woman to have power in her head, because the angels. Verse eleven: Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman. Neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Paul does this kind of wordplay a lot. He does it in 1 Corinthians 7 as well, about a husband and wife having power over each other's body. There's like this reciprocal nature in Paul's writings where he's circling things around. So his, his line of thought here is that in the first case, the proto-woman, Eve, comes literally from Adam. But after that, every single man comes from a woman. There's this interdependent cycle, and this is, this is a mark for the things that are God. Like if you look at an ecosystem, for instance, it's a, it's a closed system, but it, it, everything circles around. You know, you, you can make a terrarium that's an ecosystem, and it's self-contained. Like the off-gassing of the plants creates condensation, and that waters things. You can create a little bubble that's an ecosystem where everything's self-contained. And God's systems are like that. They're self-contained. And here in humanity, we have a self-contained system. Woman comes from man, and then every man comes from woman, and it puts everything in a cycle. So this is supposed to be curative, right? Like, we want to recognize both things. We want to recognize that Eve, the proto-woman, womankind, comes from mankind, but all men owe their existence to a woman. It's just a beautiful kind of reciprocity, a circular way of thinking about these things that keeps us balanced and stabilized. So anyhow, that's the kind of stuff. And in, in this passage right here where in verse, um, we just cited it, verse 3, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. And that, that's such a key to understanding everything that we're talking about in these concepts of headship, that these are supposed to be mirrored relationships, that what it looks like to do this is what it looks like to do this is what it looks like to do that. And that's where we kind of ended last night, talking about that order. And tonight I want to start from there, and I want to go on and look more specifically at this role of the father and the son. And this may not be apparent at first what its connection is, but I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully tie it back in. So let's look at this relationship between the father and son, and we can learn some things about order. The Trinity is a very important doctrine to me in regards to headship. Like, because it's put in these terms, because the, the relationship of the Godhead is instructive to the relationships between men and women, we should understand the relationship between the Godhead. And a lot of people, you know, you, talk, you say the word Trinity and there's like eyes kind of glaze over. Like I think that there's, there's, kind of a, there's kind of a sentiment that it's too big or too complicated of a thing. Like what are we people supposed to know about the Godhead? And it's just, it's three and it's one. How is it? I don't know, but it just is. Like that's kind of where we stop and start with the thing. 
But I don't think that that's healthy. I think because this is being used as, as a model for how we should behave, we need to understand it. And so let's look a little bit at this issue of the Trinity. Um, where, okay, so where does that word come from? Trinity, triune, trinity, that's, it, it's a Latin expression. It's probably coined by a man by the name of Tertullian in, in a work, we can even narrow the work down, Presumably this word is being used before it's written, but the first place we know about it is in a Latin work called Against Praxius. And the reason I'm telling you all this is because Against Praxius is a fascinating work by Tertullian, and in it there's two problems, two opposite problems that are happening in the third century church. On the one hand, in Rome in specific, there's an issue that's happening called modalism. And modalism is the idea that God is only one that he's all united, that there's only one thing that's God. It's not Trinitarian, it's modalist. So when Jesus was on earth, there's no God in heaven. God is only one. He's in one mode at a time, but he's only one thing. So that's one idea. And on the other side is, an, is a, a growing heresy in the, in, the, in the third century church called Arianism from the Bishop Arius. And Arianism says that Jesus is not God, that he's a created being. So on the one side, you have God isn't a trinity. He's just one thing. On the other side, you have Jesus isn't a part of God. He's a created being. And against Praxis is written to cut a line between these two heresies. So we want to distinguish God as his attributes, like he is a trinity. He is three in one, but he is three in one. That, that's, that's what this work is, is trying to deal with. And it uses this term trinity to describe. Now, now, I'll, I'll tell you how I was taught about the Trinity. There's a lot of like popular ways that the Trinity is discussed that I think are not actually helpful. So, who's heard of the Trinity as like an egg? And there's a shell, that's one, and there's a yolk, and that's two, and there's the fluid, and that's three. So there's three, but it's really one thing. And so that's, that's kind of like God. This isn't true. This is, this is modalism. This is one thing with three parts. That's not Trinity. Another one is, um, another one I heard growing up is, is water, right? You can have ice cubes in water, and that's water. Or you can have gas, steam, and that's like the Trinity. No, that's not Trinitarian. That's not true. That's not how the Godhead is. That's, that's bad ways of thinking about this. Don't do this to your children. Here's an appropriate way that classical Trinitarian theology talks about how we should understand God. And, I, and it, it comes straight from Tertullian. What you should imagine is we have a mountain. And in this mountain, you have a spring that comes forth. This, and this spring, it runs down into a river, and it ends in a lake. Now, here's why this matters. Here's why this isn't an egg, and this isn't water, steam, and ice cubes. This analogy, if you make it eternal, like this has no beginning, this is a very good analogy for the Trinity, because it preserves the proper parts. There's one thing in this whole system. It's water. How do you pick this water from this water? How do you pick this water from this water? It's one water. There's only one thing. It's water. It's all water. And that, this is true of, of the Trinity. There's one thing that's God. The reason we're not uh, triple theists, the reason we don't have three gods, we have one God because there's only one thing that is God. We are monotheists. There's only one thing, one substance, one essence that is God. But he is in three ways. And so they're just like this. There's one water. It's all water. You can't separate it. But it does have a source. And this is key. It has a source. If we say this is the Father, and this is the Son, and this is the Holy Spirit, the distinction that matters and the distinction that's important in, in talking about Trinitarian theology is that there is a source, the Father. And the, the Son is the begotten of the Father. He comes from the Father. They're one essence, there's only one thing that's God, but he comes from the Father. Another way to think about this uh, is the Son, right? The Son has light, 
and those light has rays or photons. You don't, this is the origin. This is where it comes from. But this is not something different. It's the same thing. It just has a source that it comes from. And, and what's, what's, really, what's really fascinating about this is that in the case of, in the case of how, the, how Jesus acts as being the begotten of the Father, what we find, let, let's talk about it this way for a second. Let's talk about logos. The word logos, uh, logos in Greek, it's, it's the word, it's often translated the word. So First uh, John, in the beginning was the word, logos, and the word logos was with God, and the word logos was God. So in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. John 1. Logos is a really beautiful concept, and, and the, the Greek-speaking church taught, they use this term for Jesus. They call him Logos as often as they call him Jesus in, in, in patristic writings. This concept of Logos was really important, and the reason it's translated word in English is it's, it means more than word. That's an accurate translation, but what it really means is that you have something in your head, right? Like right now, as I'm speaking to all of you, these start as thoughts, and they come out of my mind, and they proceed out of me to you, and that's words. It's not just sound waves. It's that my thoughts become tangible in the air and to you through something we call words. And that's closer to what logos is. So, so when Jesus is the logos of God, here's another way to explain it. Uh, here's, a, here's a conceptualization for how to think of the word logos. Think of a great masterpiece of art. I usually use the Sistine Chapel, right? So Michelangelo paints the Sistine Chapel. How, you all seen the Sistine Chapel, right? It's, the, it's got all these famous frescoes in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, like the one with God reaching out and Adam and him almost touch fingers. That's the Sistine Chapel. And the Sistine Chapel is an amazing work of art. At a certain point in time, Michelangelo drew up some sketches, and he went down to the Sistine Chapel, and I like to imagine it this way. I imagine him laying down in the middle of the floor and looking up and thinking, what could be there? And his mind creates an ideal. Like, I could do this there, and I could do that there, and I could do this there, and I could do this there. And then he sketches those things out, and then he spends years laying on his back on scaffolding. I don't know if you know the process of fresco making, but... You, you, you put about six square feet of mud on the wall, and you paint in the mud. And a fresco painting isn't on the wall, it's in the wall. As the mud dries, the, the pigments soak into the mud, and the painting is the wall. And so you do about six feet at a time. So he painted that, that whole ceiling on his back six feet at a time. And he gets to the end, he does all the cornices, he does the prophets in the moldings, he does all the, the whole chapel roof. And at a certain point in time, at the end of his process, he goes back down and he lays in the middle of the floor and he looks up and what he sees in front of him is what he had in his mind. That's Logos. The ideal conceptualization being made real. So when, when Jesus is the Logos of God, God has an ideal, just like Michelangelo did. And what it is, is Christ. That's God's ideal being real in front of him. Now, here's how this pertains to what we're talking about today. One of the features of watching the life of Christ in a whole bunch of aspects, what's, what's really unique about incarnational theology, about what it means for God to have made, been made flesh, what that means is that everything that Jesus did, think of all the things Jesus did. He sat, he walked, he ate, he drank, he talked, he worked, he 
hurt, he got sick, he was well, he had friends, he laughed, he cried, he, all the things that Jesus did, all of them can be described as divine. You catch that? Everything that Jesus did can be described as a divine action. And what that means is that if the Logos, the perfect ideal of God, as it pertains to his earthly ministry, God thought, what could a man be? All of that daily life, that these things can be holy. It can be, you, can, you can be holy in the way that you eat, talk, walk, live, move, work, be. All the things that you do, if Jesus could do them as God in the flesh, then we can do them in ways that are holy and sanctified and righteous. It opens up, like this ideal, ideologically was true before Jesus was incarnate. Like because it was God's creation and God's earth and he made us and we're in his image, this was, and as an idea, it was possibly true before the incarnation. But after the incarnation, when we see Jesus, when we see God in the flesh, walking and moving and being and doing, then we know, now we know, not just we think, but we know that anything that we do can be righteous and holy. The way we suffer, the way we work, the way we talk, the way we interact with truth, the way that we interact with people, all these things can be sanctified. It sanctifies all of the human existence because Jesus was God in the flesh and he did the human existence. This is, this is a pivotal reason for the incarnation. One of the features that Jesus did that was divine was... Submit. And this is counterintuitive to me. I don't expect God to submit. That's kind of a contradiction of terms. In, in my head it is, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to think of God submitting. What does it mean to submit? To submit means to yield. You could define it some other ways, but that's a good practical definition. God submits. You know what else God did? Um, Luke 2.52, it says that, and the Lord Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with who? With God and man. Wow. How does, how does Jesus grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man? Here's another thing. He learned obedience through the things which he suffered. This is one of the most amazing ideas that's attached to the Christian framework, is that God was man. It's like it's it's a revolution. And if it weren't true, it would be a blasphemy. But this is how God worked. So in his life, he submitted. What that means is that in certain cases, submission is a divine act. It can be a divine act. I don't, I don't know if I'm quite getting the point across here. Um, let's look at Mark, chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and look in, starting in verse around 30 somewhere. <clears throat> Let's start in 
Let's, let's start in 30. Uh, one. But he spake the more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any... That's Peter and his denial. 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, his closest friends. And he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto them, Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh a third time. And saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It's enough. The hour's come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. There's one of the distinguishing features of Jesus' prayer life before this moment is that every prayer he utters is answered. But this time, he prays three times. He recognizes the Father's power. You can do anything. And he's grieving. In another passage, you know, in another instance of this, he, he weeps tears of blood. I've been in some heavy prayer, but I've never been that heavy in prayer. And he weeps tears of blood, and he is in anguish of soul. And the, the, where it comes down to is, I want this, I don't want this, and you do want this. That's, that's, that's what he's saying to his father. I don't want this. I don't want what's going to happen. And the resolution of that conflict of wills is, not my will, but yours be done. And it becomes a divine act to submit, to yield. So here's what I would say. <clears throat> the way that I would... That, so there's a bigger... There's a whole, there's a whole construct around submission that 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 you almost have to talk about in order to talk about submission and its authority. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a confession to you all right now. At my core, Matthew Milioni is a rebellious man. Like that's a distinguishing feature of who I am. It's where I come from. I'm left to my own before I knew Christ I'm an antisocial, destructive, rebellious person. I hate, in my natural body, I hate authority. I, I recoil against it. If, if you, in my natural state, if you tell me to do something, and even if you tell me it's for, if it's for good, if you told me to eat supper, I'd say no and, and starve because that's how much I don't like being told what to do. That's who I am. I, I've come to terms with this long ago. That's the man that was buried in my baptism. And I, I have a very different experience with the world now. But in my natural state, that's what I am. I recoil against that word. Because I don't 
because I hate this. I don't want to submit. I don't want to yield my way to anyone or anything else. My autonomy matters more to me than anything else in my natural state. But if you want to understand submission, you have to think about authority. Because submission, like, here's two ways to end a conflict. Fight or submit. If there's a conflict of wills, and they have to, something has to be done, there's only two resolutions. Fight or someone submits. That interaction of fight or submit being played out all over the earth. There's literally a war happening on the other side of the world right now for this exact cause. And, and as much as my natural man recoils against it, what we see in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is this sensitivity to people who recognize authority. Why? Who told the woman with the issue of blood that if she touched Jesus, she could be healed? I don't know. I, there's nobody that's recorded. There's no, we don't have any idea who gave her that notion. I don't know where she gets it in her head that if she would only touch the hem of her, here's what she says, I knew that if I could but touch the hem of his garment, I would be whole. Who tells her that? Don't know. But something in that woman recognizes not the man Jesus, but who he really is. And that recognition, not that he's the guy from Nazareth, that he's a healer, but he has something behind him. It's not just the man that I see. He's a part of something bigger than what I see that is authority. In the end of the, at the, end of the Sermon on the Mount, after he talks about the house on the sand and the house on the rock, it says they marveled at him, for he spoke not as the Pharisees, but as one having authority. Like what he spoke about, he knew about. It wasn't a speculation. He wasn't talking about ideas. He was talking about things that he knew. And the, the centurion says to him, the centurion who is lauded for such great faith have I not seen in all of Israel, all the people who for generation after generation after generation after generation have awaited the Messiah of Jehovah can't see it, can't recognize the one who was going to fill the role of authority that God had promised from the prophets way ago all the way back to the garden, the seed of the woman. They couldn't see it. But this, this pagan intruder, this guy who stomps on Israel, it's like, um, it'd be like if the Taliban came here and displayed proper Christian Trinitarian theology to us. That's who the centurion is. He's the outsider, the enemy, the one that's not us. And he sees what our people were conditioned their whole generations to see and have not seen. And what is it based on? He says, for I am a man in authority, and I say unto, unto my man, go, and he goes, and come, and he comes. And you, you are, are, are a man of authority too. You don't need to come to my house. Just say the word. I know what's behind you. I have the Roman legions behind me. I know what you have behind you. And this is what the, the disciples themselves don't recognize in the Sea of Galilee when the storm comes. It's why he's mad at them. You ever, I, I, I read these scenes about the Gospels, right? And I put myself in the shoes of the disciples, and I'm like, come on, you got to be so tough on them. Like, I would be afraid too. You're, you're in that boat. They, they, everything's going crazy. There's water coming over the side. You're all, oh, no, how, what's going to happen? We're all going to die. And he rebukes them. 
we need a little faith. And he calms the wind. They didn't see what the centurion saw. These were his disciples. And what my premise about all of this, speaking about authority, is that there's structures at place that are more than the sum of their parts. There's something that happens in, in institutional frameworks that, that are more... Okay, so if a policeman pulls me over, we know this innately, if a policeman pulls me over, it doesn't matter if he's a jerk, it doesn't matter if he's mean to his kids, it doesn't matter if he ran through a red light to come and get me, it doesn't matter if he's not a nice person, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter even if he's breaking the law in his own personal life. When those blue and red lights flash, I pull over has nothing to do with the person that's not the issue the issue is there's an authority structure that claims a right over me and my behavior that says you need to respond and so i respond or i fight right those are the two options again submit or fight you can fight if you want you can run you can have a shootout with the police if you want i don't want to the point is the authority is more than the sum of its parts it's the same thing in the church. When God's people come together as the church, here, I'll tell you something that this is a freebie. I, as I've interacted with the church over the whole course of my life, I'm going to make a statement about my experience. I've never been in a situation where the church spoke with one voice in my life about an issue that they were wrong about. In 20 years, that's my experience. I can tell you, I've never been in a situation where the church spoke with one voice in my life and they were wrong. I purposely put my life in the middle of the church. I purposefully listen. I purposefully want the church to speak into my life. Now, I can sit down with a brother and he can say this and I can say that and we can disagree. But when you're talking about the church speaking into your life, like we as your brothers are saying X, that has just never been wrong in my life. And it's, and it's more than the sum of the parts. When I'm in that situation, when I'm over here and the whole church is over here, I just dealt with this situation. It didn't involve me. It involved somebody else. And it was a brother that was saying, I'm in this conflict, and I, I, I needed to help sort out the, the pieces. And I said, look, I, don't, I, can't, I can't work out all the details. I'm not a referee. I, I can't recreate the conversations. I can't recreate the problems. Here's what I can tell you. I got one guy over here, and I have the whole church over here. The odds are you're wrong. Could that be wrong? I suppose. I could also walk out the door and be hit by lightning. It's possible. It's possible. It's possible you could be right and the whole church could be wrong. That is a possibility. There have been some very rare, unique circumstances in human history when that's happened. Is that the claim that you're making to me? Are you, make, are you making the claim that you're one of these lightning strike moments, that this is your prophetic moment where you're going to be right and all of God's people are going to be wrong? It's, it's really rare. And in those cases, I think it should be really sure. And the reason, the reason I get into those situations and I say, okay, all my brothers are saying one thing and I'm at a different place, I want to yield. Is because, not because, not even because of my love for my brothers, who I do love very much, but it's because there's an authority in the church. And one of the ways that God speaks to me is through authority. And for a young rebel like me, and not so young anymore, but who was a young rebel, I have to cultivate an ear and an eye to look for authority. To see it where it is. And to trust it. And to see not the men, not the church, but the God who's behind those things. And those are important. Now, Let's zero all that back in down now to a home. And let's talk about what this means in our homes. Pause. We're going to come back to that point. I'm going to circle back to the Trinity a little bit. Because one of the things that I want to point out is that
this order in the Trinity, this father-son construct that we're, we're pointed, that's pointed out in Corinthians 11, it's instructive because somebody... Okay, so let's, let's, let's deal with one more Trinitarian issue. Some people will say, and this is a, this is a contested theological issue today, some people will say that the reason that Jesus submits is just because he's in the flesh. Like, Jesus is submitting to the Father as a man, not as the God-man. So it's not his divinity that's submitting, it's his humanity that's submitting. Well, there's some problems with that to begin with. It's hard to, you, you can't, it's not really right to separate those things. That's the stuff of ecclesiastical councils where people go to war over finely pointed theological terms. You can't, you can't do that very well. You can't make separations in Christ and what's his humanity and what's his divinity. But even if you could, the claim is that as a man, he submits in the garden. But as God, him and God have one will. This is a whole theological framework of what, whether there's one will, a discrete will of God, all these things. I don't necessarily recommend it unless you're really into that stuff. It can be kind of tedious to read. But the question is, is... God submitting in the garden or is the man Jesus submitting in the garden? That's the way this term gets talked about. And I have an answer. I don't have an answer. The Bible has an answer. Flip with me to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Back to 1 Corinthians. We're going to flip a few chapters over. In chapter 15. Look what it says here. Wow. Um, in verse 20, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also resurrection. There's one of those cyclical V shapes that we talked about before. Um, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God. This is the end of the eschaton. This is the end. This is where the story ends. Like the next chapter of this, we don't know much about. We get a, we get a wedding supper of the Lamb. We get a new heaven, a new earth. And then... Period. Like, that's where our revelation ends. And the end that it's talking about right here, this is the end. This is one of the last things. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. Him, It is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. So the Father's the only exception. Everything but the Father is subjected under the Son. Everything is under him. All, every knee has bowed. Every tongue has confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every, the whole creation, all that is, is subjected under Christ, and he is king over all as he should be. Even death has surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's where we're at. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The last moment of the eschaton, when everything's put back in order, when Jesus stands supreme over all of the creation, over all of reality, is that then, and only then, he turns around and he says, I too submit to my Father. That's the last moment. This submission of Christ is not a feature of the garden. It's not a feature of his humanity. Jesus has always been the Son. And he has always been from the Father. 
And he has always been under his father. The way he talks about his father on earth is the way that he has always been in relation to his father. And it's the way that he always will be in relation to his father. See, here's the thing. If we, when we talk about this stuff... <clears throat> There's one thing that is this, right? But, but, if, but what is it that makes them three? Well, we talked about it already, right? This is the source. This is what everything comes from. This is what God comes from. And, and this role of being from the Father is the perpetual identity of the Son. See, if, if this isn't in their person... If this isn't in their person, then there's no differentiation. If the father, if the son isn't under the father, then you just have one thing. It's just, it's just God. Then we're just modalists. There's just one thing that's God, and sometimes it looks like Jesus, and sometimes it looks like the Holy Spirit, and sometimes it looks like the Father. But none of this works in a modalist framework. How's the son submit to the father himself and everything that he's subdued if there's nothing intrinsically son-like? Why, why does the name father and son go eternally back with God? He's always been the father and he's always been the son. He's always been the Jehovah and he's always been the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. That's always what he's been from eternity past and from eternity forward. And what that means, so here's how it matters to headship. The father is the head of Christ. And when I, when I opened yesterday, when we talked about this passage, about what it means for the father to be in relation to the son, is what it means for Jesus to be in relation to man, is what it means for man to be in relation to woman, the reason that matters is because we're playing out parts. This is the reason for the order. Okay, look, when I talk about marriage, when I talk about divorce and marriage, a huge issue, it's a really big thorny thing. When people, when you listen, when you talk about divorce and marriage, everybody has people who are affected by that. And everybody weeps over and everybody hurts from how broken the world is about marriage. And we look people in the face and we say, I know that you love each other. I know that you're married, but you have a living wife. You have a living husband and this can't be. You have to separate. And they say, why, why, why is it so hard? Why is it so strict? Why can't we move forward? And the reason is this. Because the first prophecy, the first prophetic act that happens is not the curse. It's not this, thy seed and his seed. It's not that stuff. The first prophetic event is that Eve is created the, the wife of Adam. That's the first prophetic event. The reason I say that is because it's the eternal prophetic event because we end in the eschaton where? In a marriage supper of the Lamb. Husband and wife is the eternal thing for humans. Like That's what we're made to be. This picture, you are made to be a picture of Christ and his church. And that is a reflection of who God is. Christ and his church, man and wife, Father and Son, these things repeat, they echo, and it's the substance of reality. And it's what he wants us to partake in. So why does this matter? Why does it matter that the Son has forever been submissive to his Father? Because we have a part to play where we get to live out these roles. The reason this, the, the, the divorce and marriage teaching is so strict and so harsh, the reason it hurts so much, is because, okay, look, Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness, and then he spends 40 years on his own. Then he spends all that time with the children in rebellion after they come out of Egypt. He spent 80 years of his life honing his relationship to God. God says these amazing things about him. There's no one like Moses. He's the meekest man that ever lived. He, I, I trust him. I know him. Nobody sees God but Moses. He's the only one that, remember, he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And he says, I'll cover you with my hand. And when I pass by, I'll move my hand and you can see my hinder parts. He gets to see God. There's nobody that has this experience. Except for Jesus, the most prominent and, and powerful and prolific man in the entire biblical narrative is Moses the lawgiver. And after all of his life's faithfulness and all of his work, his life ends in one place at a rock. 
And, and, and God told him, speak to the rock and the water will come. And in his frustration and anger, he struck the rock like he did the first time. And God says to Moses, the thing you've lived your whole life for, you're right on the edge of the promised land. You've spent your entire life with this stiff-necked, rebellious people. You've led these people through all this trouble. Moses caused God to repent because of his love for the people and the promised land. And when it comes to the end of his life, he breaks a type. And what was that type? This rock was Christ. He broke a type of Jesus Christ in the wilderness when he struck it instead of speaking to it. And God said, you will not step foot on the promised land. In my mercy and kindness, I'll let you go up into the mountain and you can look at it. But because you did that, you will not step foot on the promised land. The thing you've lived your whole life for. You can see it, but you can't touch it. Because that type, that rock, God was trying to do something and show something there. And Moses should have known, and Moses messed it up. Now, that type, when I look at it, I'm like, okay, I see it, but it's not, it's not super obvious. Like, I... I wouldn't have known that. I'm not Moses. Moses should have known it. But I didn't know it. Like I, If it didn't tell me that, I wouldn't know that. But marriage. Marriage. Marriage is where we begin. And marriage is where we end. And the most beautiful thing about marriage is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. In any time, and in any place, I don't care if you're in a jungle a 2,000 years ago. I don't care where you are in any time or place when a man has taken a woman and said, you're mine and I'm yours. I don't care what their ideas are. I don't care what their religion is. I don't care what they know. I don't care what they don't know. Everywhere where humans have been doing that since the beginning of humanity, they have been playing out a picture of Christ and his bride for all humanity. And that's what you have access to in your home, brothers and sisters. You are playing out this saga of what God is doing in all of his revelation to human history. This is not a little thing. We get used to it. And we get, you know, who's doing the laundry and who's picking up the children and where's supper and why is a, all this daily slog of life gets in the way of stuff. And sometimes you've got to just stop and step back and look at it and say, what are we doing? What is this about? This is about eternal things. This is about Christ and his bride. That's what you are. That's what we are. We read these passages. Like this is what... I read this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 and it drives me batty. That, or like they read means you're supposed to wear a head covering or not. We make rules about it. That's not... There's so much more here. Paul says at the end of Ephesians, right? Like, we're not even going to get there. What Paul says in the end of Ephesians, he says, I speak a great mystery. What's the great mystery? Christ and his church. That's what you're doing. You're Christ and his church. So how does that figure into submission? What's the role of Christ? Here, I don't want to end there. I want to talk about submission for just a minute. Give me, give me five more minutes. Let me go a little bit longer. I, here's what I think about submission. The Garden of Gethsemane is a point of submission. Why? Because there's a conflict of wills. I believe that the reason that authority structures are the way that they are, the reason God has given us in his mercy and kindness, he's given us authority. That, that includes all authority structures, Right? I can be as critical as anybody about the government going, governments, not just ours, going and murdering and slaughtering for resources and power and dominion. That's horrible. It's, it, the cost is enormous. And I can be as critical as anybody about power structures in the world doing horrible things and wrecking lives. But 
those things are ordained by God to keep the world working. And that's a whole different message I'm not going to talk about now. But what I'm saying is that authority is a gift from God. It keeps the world working. And the way it keeps the world working is that we don't, we're, we're what God wants to do, right? We're supposed to be the society of Jesus, the new humanity. You're supposed to be Adam and Eve if it didn't break. That's what you're making in your house. That's what you're making in your life. That's the ideal. That's where we're going to. We're marching to Zion. Zion is God's ideal, what he intended, the good that he wanted his creation to live in. That's what we're pursuing. But we don't have access to tools. Like, I can't stop a man from going on a rampage. I can't stop. The, the world is, has an authority structure to do that. I can't, as a Christian, it's not my job or place to make sure you don't drive 90 miles an hour through a school zone. But somebody needs to, because not everybody's a Christian. That's what the world's for. That's what that authority structure's for. And it keeps the world going. And seeing those authority structures helps us understand what God's trying to do in the world. So where these points come of submission, especially for us, for, let's talk about us now, in our homes, in our churches, in the way that we live our lives, the points of submission for us are when there's one will here and another will here. Let me rephrase this so you understand what I mean. It's not supposed to be, Jesus doesn't live every day of his earthly ministry at the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a, this is a climactic point. It's a point of crisis. It's a problem that Jesus has, he doesn't want to endure the pain and toil that's ahead of him, and he knows that the Father does. This conflict of wills is not the normal state of their relationship. It's a special problem. And we're not supposed to live our married lives in a constant state of, you got to submit, you got to submit, you got to submit, you got to submit. This is for conflict resolution. When you get to the place in a home and you say, we have this will and we have this will, are we going to fight or submit? That's the point. And God's given us a recourse. He's given us a way to move forward where we know there's an authority structure in place. Submission comes in and we can keep moving forward. That's the goal. That's why these things are in place. And, 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 and it, it's, it's both sides of a coin, right? So the head, of the, the head of the home has all the responsibility, like the outcome, how it's going to go, what the results of this are. That responsibility is on the head, and the body follows. And we haven't even talked about all this body terminology yet, head and body. These, these are essential pieces of all this puzzle, too, especially with Christ and his church, what it means, head and body, how that all fits. Maybe we can get into that tomorrow evening. But the submission point is a point of conflict resolution. Now, I think uh, marriages are different. Everybody's got their own experiences. But I, I think... I can probably count on one hand how many times my marriage has come down to this point. When we just have two irreconcilable wills, they can't both go forward, and we've got to move forward. What are we going to do? It's, it's not the norm. Why does it matter? Why, does it, why do we have to put these things in place? How, how important is it that we understand this? It's like I, I, was, I was telling brothers this morning when we were talking about this stuff. This question came up, like, why do we have to deal with all this? Like, is it that important? If it's that rare of a situation, why do we have to make such a big deal about it? Why the head covering? Why all this stuff? Here's what I'd say. These kinds of convictions about how a home operates and headship and where to find our order, they're, they're kind of like our conviction that we don't use divorce. Now, if you live your married life every day, just remind yourself, I can't get divorced, I can't get divorced, I can't get divorced, it's a pretty rough way to live a marriage. Like, oh man, I would if I could, but I just know that I can't get divorced. That's not the point. The point is when things are bad, when everybody's worn to their nub, when money's short, children are sick, everybody's worn out, things are hard, this happens in homes. I don't, maybe your home's don't ever experience these, but I get some low points in my home 
where life is just hard. And when life is hard, one of the things that carries you through is that that is not a place we go. That's not an option. we got to figure out something. We're going to have to right this ship. We're going to have to find a way to keep going because our underlying conviction is that this is a lifelong marriage. For better or worse, so let's make it better, right? And that, at, when you get to that place, that matters. But it's not the place you're supposed to live. And the same thing is true with these submission concepts. It's not the place we're supposed to live. It's not the normal day-to-day operation of a home. But it is the, the last resource when you say, my will is here, her will is here, we can't get them on the same page, how are we going to move forward? We step into our order. We follow our role. I'm going to lead and be the head. And she's going to be the body and she's going to follow me. And we'll move forward. And we don't have to get stuck in the fight. We don't have to stay at that place. And you can see how easily this has been abused by people in the past. How do we do that? How do we prevent that? How do we keep that from being tyrannical? How do we keep problems from happening from this? How do we keep people from perverting this for their own purposes and their own selfish ideals? Well, there's a lot of answers to that, and I don't think we have time, but I'll, I'll say a few things. We're a community is one thing. If there's problems, here's the thing that, that really bothers me, is how many problems there are in the church that never come to light. This is something that keeps me up at night, to be quite honest. What's happening with us that people don't know what's happening? What, what, what's happening with us as a group of people that you can have problems in a home for years and women and children are just suffering and things aren't right and, and nobody knows? Or they know and nothing ever happens. Why is that? Why does that happen to us? I hate that. What I want, what I expect is that what it means to be the Christian community is that we know each other. And we know where the problems are. Look how many resources there are in this room, in this community. How many gifts, how many skills, how much resource is there in this place? There's no reason that people have... Here's the reason, pride. People are proud. I I I've spent the last <clears throat> I've spent the last many years of my life chasing Christian community. I mean chasing, I mean doggedly chasing community. I want to live with God's people. I want to be close to them. I want family. I w- when I was first converted, you know, I had come from I had come out of the streets and lived in a gang. My wife and I were in a gang when when we became Christians. And when I came into the evangelical churches, one of the things that was immediately apparent to me is that I, I've been living for the devil, literally, in the world. But our gang loved each other. We were there for each other. We, we were involved in each other. We helped each other. We were in each other's homes, what homes we had. We knew what was happening. And I came into the evangelical church and I sit next to this guy. His name's Brother Bob. I don't know a thing about Brother Bob. I, I know how loud he yells amen on Sunday. And then after the service is over, everybody goes home to their own lives. And I'm not going to see Brother Bob again until next Sunday. It's not a brother. And I was like, why, why do we have more community as heathens than you all do in the church? It didn't make no sense to me. 
It was Mennonite people in Oregon, the first that showed me. I had this, I had this thing in my heart that I knew there was supposed to be something else. And the thing, the reason I had came around Mennonite people was they were the first people I met who were actually involved in each other's life, who were in each other's home, who were around each other's children, who shared their lives together, who had some sense of community and commonality. And I, and I took a breath of fresh air the first time I went into Harrisburg Mennonite and met these people. I was like, you can do it. You can be a community. You can know each other's lives. You can raise your children together. You can spend time in one another's homes. You can share your things together. You can take care of each other. It was such a relief to me. But I spent, I spent so many years chasing that, that, that family. And I'm glad for so many of the things that I have. But one of the most important things to me was... Here's a conviction that I have. There's going to be a judgment. Components of the judgment is that God's going to judge the nations. There's a feature of the judgment that is about God judging the nations. And this, this is a pivotal thing to me when I renounced my citizenship with God. When I renounced my Americanness with God and said, I don't want to be an American. I want to be a Christian. That was a very specific action that happened in my life. And the reason was... I don't want to stand on that side of the equation. When God comes around to judging America, I don't want to be there. So how do I distinguish my life? How do I prove that that's true? I live here. I got dollars in my wallet. I, I, I'm under the laws here. Uh, this is my place. I was born here. I live here. All these things. How am I going to show God when the time comes that I belong in the Christian category, not in the American category? And I set out at that point as a young man to say, I want to destroy the American dream of my life. And you know, the first thing I knew I had to get rid of, I had to get rid of this king of the castle mentality that inside the walls of my home, it's just me and it's just mine and nobody can tell me nothing about it. And my attempts to, to create community for my life and for my family have been to tear down those walls and to bring people in. I want you to see. I want you to know how it is with my wife. I want you to ask her questions. Is everything good? How are you doing? I want you to see how it is with my children. I want you to be close enough that if I have a bad day, you know how I act. Do you know how your brothers and sisters act when they have a bad day? I've tried to create a place where if I have a bad day, somebody knows what happens. Because I want, I want to be whole. I want to be real. Here's the other thing about that. I used to think when I started, when I started working with churches and thinking about these things, how do we create community and how do we create reality? How do we, how do we be real with the church? This is the question we're really after. And this is the reason I'm talking about this is because this is the answer for how we keep these teachings from becoming tyranny in people's homes. How do you get people to be real in the church? I've spent a lot of time asking myself this question. And when I was younger, I used to think that the biggest problem, the reason people weren't real because they're phonies, because they're hypocrites. And that is a big, that is a big problem when it happens, but it's not the common problem. Because the hypocrite, you know, he's a jerk in his house, and he's yelling and screaming and hollering at everybody, and then he comes to church and he puts on a smile and greets the brother and says, how are you? I'm at peace with God, my fellow man. That's hypocrisy. That's a liar, and that's a bad, bad thing, and bad, bad things happen from that kind of hypocrisy, but it's not actually the biggest problem in the church. You know what the biggest problem, you know what keeps us from being real in the church? When I come to church, I don't mean this building, I mean this people. When I come to the church, what I, what I often do is I present to you not a fake me. It's not a fake me. I present to you me at my best. I present to you me when I'm, when I'm doing well. And that's the me that you get to see. It's not, a, it's not fake me. I'm not lying. I am that person. But it's just the best curated parts of me. And that's who you see. 
Hi, how are you? Oh yeah, we're good. Things are well, thank you. But where do you have space to be you at your worst? When do you bring that you to the church? Where's the space and the place where that you comes to church? This is a big question. And it doesn't happen on its own. You have to curate this space. You have to, you have to work to have this space. You have to take risks to have that space. You have to be in places where you care more about being real than your reputation, than your pride. There's a few ways that we do this as a people back home. We're trying to, we're, we're, we're very specifically trying as a people to be real with each other. It's one of the hardest things to do as a community. And because it's one of the hardest things to do, it's one of the most rewarding things that you can do. Because here's the, here's the bottom line. You are both the best you and the worst you. And if you put the worst you in a closet and walk away from it, and then when you come home, it's still there, it's just going to grow. You don't ever deal with it until some crisis happens and you have to deal with it. And that's really ugly stuff. It's so much better to find a place where you can be the real you, where you can bring you, your problems. Can you, can you people imagine what's like if you were to sit in a meeting and just say, here's, like, let's just imagine, let's do a thought experiment, okay, as I close here. Let's do a thought experiment. Next week, you all decide, hey, we want to do this. We want to really be real, okay? We're going to take the skeletons out of the closet. We're going to really be real. We want, to, we, want to, we want to really dig in and be a people together, be a family together, and know each other, and, and, and help one another, and bear one another's burdens, and get over our stuff. I got stuff. You got stuff. Let's put it out there and start working on it and become better. That's what it means to be a disciple. And next week you say, okay, we're going to break into groups of eight. Brother, eight brothers here, eight brothers there, eight sisters there, eight sisters there. And you're going to say, here's my biggest struggle. Yes, the question you say, what keeps you from being exactly what God wants you to be? Pick one thing. Maybe you got a list of 15, but take the top one. What's the one thing that's right now? What's the one thing that's keeping you from being what you know? Not what other people want you to be. Not what maybe, what you know God wants you to be. And put it on the table. And say, here's, here's my struggle. Here's where I'm weak. Here's where I'm, here's where I'm not what God wants me to be. Do any of you have, can you help me? anything I should be doing. If you can create a real community, you can't have, you can almost can't have tyrants. And, and talking about submission and talking about headship isn't a threat. And it doesn't, it doesn't railroad people. It doesn't run them over. It becomes life-giving. It becomes, we're playing our part. I get to be playing the part of Christ to his church. I get to be the part of Christ to his church. We're playing out a drama for our children, for our neighbors, for our church of what it means for Christ to love his church and his church to submit to his headship. And the things that people get so afraid about become beauty and life-giving and health and wholeness. That's the goal. Amen.